Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host, and today we will be speaking with Christopher Bolas about his most recent publication, in fact, one of two most recent publications, but today we'll focus on only one, um, and that one is Catch Them Before They Fall, Psychoanalysis, uh, the Psychoanalysis of Breakdown, published by Rutledge on uh, 2013. Uh, Christopher Bolas, I imagine, is well known to much of this listening audience. Um, he's a psychoanalyst who um, is read by, he's a psychoanalyst psychoanalyst, I think might be a way to uh, to describe him. But he is also a practicing psychoanalyst uh, living in Los Angeles currently and is a member of the British Psychoanalytical Society and uh, did reside in London for over 35 years. And while he was there, he worked uh, at the Tavistock Clinic here in the States. Um, he was director of training um, for a three-year stint at uh, the Austin Riggs Center um, in uh, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, um, one of the few centers still um, functioning that uh, focus on the delivery of psychoanalytic treatment um, to uh, inpatients um, here in the United States. He was also a professor of psychoanalysis at the University of Rome for over 20 years. Um, sounds like a very fun job um, and uh, to me. And he was also a professor of English at the University of Massachusetts. Um, He has two recent publications, pretty much concomitant. Um, One is China on the Mind, which maybe we'll speak with him about at another time. And what we'll be speaking with about today, Catch Them Before They Fall. Um, He's completed a book of essays uh, to be published in 2014 and is concluding a history of his work with schizophrenic people where he takes a new and different view of their unconscious strategies. Um, The man is certainly prolific and... um, Perhaps without further ado, let's just move forward uh, into this um, into this interview in which we discuss uh, his very new and different um, view of working with people who are on the precipice of breakdown. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Uh, my name is Tracy Morgan, your host as always. And today we have with us Christopher Bolas, and uh, we're very pleased to have him uh, on the program. We'll be discussing with him today his book published in, uh, by Rutledge 2013, the title of which is Catch Them Before They Fall, The Psychoanalysis of Breakdown. Um, it's a thrill uh, to have um, Christopher Bolas here, and uh, I'm a little bit nervous, like, um, <laughs> to be interviewing someone whose work I've been reading um, probably for the past 15 years. But um, but here we are, and uh, let's begin the interview. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, we, the first question I want to ask you um, is, uh, this is a book about responding um, from, at least this is how I understand it, to the non-psychotic patient in breakdown. And in this book, you elaborate what some might find to be a controversial method of working with the patient at such a moment. Can you describe for the listeners the method you have put to use over the years when you see that a patient begins to enter um, enter a breakdown? Well, very simply, the method is that I extend 
um, the hours, the amounts of analysis uh, based upon my assessment of the degree of the clinical uh, issue. In other words, the challenge that presents itself to me. So in the very beginning, 1970s, it really amounted to usually uh, offering an, a, an additional session that uh, each day of the week. So if somebody was in, well, in those days, most people were in five times a week analysis. So we'd maintain them uh, twice a day, uh, five days a week. Uh, sometimes I would offer seven days, so it would mean seeing them on the weekends as well. Um, what I learned from mistakes with a few patients early on is that if you, if someone is in breakdown and you don't meet their needs before they decompensate mm-hmm. or get themselves into really grave problems, um, then you're playing a sort of catch-up. You're trying to, to remedy a breakdown, but you, you failed the person because you haven't met their clinical needs beforehand. So what I wanted to do was simply offer more analysis. And that's really what I did. Um, just fundamentally the same uh, procedure, the same process, mm-hmm. but just offering more of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, made, it made sense to me. And um, I benefited, in effect, uh, at the time, from having worked with psychotic analyzants in London, five times a week analysis. They were schizophrenics, manic depressive people, or severely disturbed hysterics. And I had set up a team of people to help me in the event that these people needed hospitalization. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, I had a psychiatrist that I worked with uh, as a kind of uh, someone there in the background that they could see just for the possibility of medication, possibility of hospitalization. I had actually researched the hospitals in North London. I, I, I took advantage of being an American, and, uh, which, which, uh, which means that, that the English thought I, I was really kind of uh, inept and stupid when I walked <laughs> into the hospitals and said um, that I was a psychoanalyst and that I would, would they be kind enough to show me their wards? Mm. Uh, an English person would never do that. I did it and was able to visit the hospitals to see, well, if I have to send somebody to hospital, where is it going to be? I also worked with an, an area team, uh, a group of social workers, an area team in North London, um, in the event that people needed home care. Now, that that group did act, uh, uh, certain, certainly the home care group did act with some of my psych- very psychotic patients. Found it very, very helpful. So all of that was in place um, for psychotic patients, none of whom I had to hospitalize, incidentally. Um, and when it came to non-psychotic people getting into real difficulty, having a breakdown, I had that team in place. It took me a while to figure out the timing, that is, um, to act sooner rather than later, to, to, to offer additional sessions um, much sooner than I uh, did in the beginning. So, uh, and I, I learned from that that when you see the early signs of breakdown, then that's the time to indicate to the patient that one has been trained to work with people in, in great distress, and then I... I propose a change in the number of sessions, uh, and it's all treated, or I try to treat it in a very matter-of-fact way, 
because the patient is um, really in a state of panic mm-hmm. and needs to be needs to be assured that this extension of time is part of my standard of practice, which it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about um, if you could tell us. You have a particular way of uh, a particular sensitivity to tuning in to the patient um, uh, on the verge um, or anticipating uh, their breakdown. It sounds like you've um, fine-tuned that very much so over the years. But uh, in the book, you um, suggest something which is interesting. And it reminded me of an article, uh, an essay that you wrote. I think it's from... um, the Freudian moment on uh, the uh, transference interpretation as a resistance to free association. And in this book, in Catch Them Before They Fall, you state that it's uh, this way of working is not possible for all analysts. Uh, those are my words, but I'm going to quote you now. You say, especially for those who, quote, regard it as mandatory to be constantly interpreting the transference in the here and now, or of those who enter into a dialogue with the analysand, offering the analyst personal response to what has been said, end quote. Um, I think you're perhaps referring to those who work interpersonally, relationally. Um, and I was wondering what makes responding to a breakdown uh, in the way you suggest um, less likely to be possible or as effective uh, for analysts of, um, who, who work in these other ways? The act of listening openly in a state of reverie, a or evenly suspended attentiveness, as, as Freud proposed, um, really is an act of deep internalization of the analyzant's uh, character communications as well as free associations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't actually listen to free associations if you're interrupting the patient with interpretations. So if you want to work within the method of uh, the freely associated patient, then you have to remain quiet and receptive And actually, you have to be unaware, really, of what's taking place in the session. It's an irony. Mm -hmm. You have to trust that your own unconscious is going to perceive a pattern of communication, be it a characterological pattern or a narrative pattern in the free associations. It will communicate itself to your own unconscious. And then at the right time, I guess, it will enter consciousness in the analyst's consciousness, and he or she may say something. So the only way I think you can get that is to remain quiet, to almost like a form of meditation where you just are still and listen and take this in. And so for me, this was crucial to perceiving early signs in analyzants of of breakdown, of distress. And I would suppose also, uh, I don't say this in the book, but the development of a kind of psychic frame that is already in place mm-hmm. to receive um, more disturbed communications because, of course, this way of listening is a type of psychic brain essential to the classical uh, psychological process. Mm-hmm. I also mention in the book that, of course, uh, analysts working interpersonally or whatever, I'm sure have their own ways of mm-hmm. uh, working with people who are breaking down, and I'm not suggesting that my way of doing this is by any means the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. It's, simply, it's simply that in order to follow the way I work in this book, uh, one needs to know early on that this is within the Freudian paradigm. Right, right. Um, yeah, and I don't think in the book that you do suggest, you do in fact say in the book that other ways of people who work in other ways probably have their other 
their own ideas about how to work with a patient um, in breakdown. But you do describe, I think what's come up, um, actually I, uh, this book was read in my uh, reading group that's been in, you know, meeting for the past eight or nine years. And, uh, it, you know, it, it caused a lot of uh, interest and anxiety. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, this, the feeling of how, would I, how do I know when the patient is in breakdown? And you've just described it. Um, as something that sort of washes over the cell, over the analyst's psyche and comes to the fore. Um, but I think you also do describe in the book ways in which the patient's speech changes, um, things that are almost like positive symptoms, um, you know, that you can, that one can clue into. And, uh, I think you're also talking about, and correct me if, if I'm wrong, you're talking about patients, particularly in this book, they seem to be people who have suffered, um, uh, often a, a, a sudden or maybe not so sudden, but ne- but an object loss of a, you know, a, 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 either a, a job where they were seen in a certain way, a friend that saw them a certain way, a, a, a husband or a wife. Um, is is that the kind of uh, is that is that what you commonly see with this non psychotic breakdown, the precip- as a precipitant? Yes, there is an event. Now that event can be like a parking ticket. Right. It can be something, you know, something really quite seemingly innocuous, like the carrot cake. Yeah, yeah, that's had a profound impact upon on the individual. Um, I argue in the book that it's essential if the analyst can do this mm-hmm. to try to get um, a very detailed history of the uh, of the event, because the patient will have regarded the event as insignificant. They, in fact, they won't even know there was a reason for this. They're just, they're, they're basically coming to pieces. Right. They don't, they don't have a recollection of there being anything significant per se that's caused this. They're just coming to pieces. So at that point, um, the, the taking of a recent history, just saying, well, just tell me what's happened in the last few days. Mm-hmm. Actually, they then unconsciously do, in fact, indicate um, the uh, precipitating event. It's possible that if you get to that very early and are empathic and say, well, of course, you were terribly distressed by this. Mm-hmm. And it's possible to link it to other events in the patient's psychic life or history that um, there will be no uh, full-on breakdown. That you can actually uh, contain it right there and right then. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, but that's the luck of the draw in a way. It depends on the ability of the patient to recollect events. Yes, I think it depends to some extent on the patient's ego strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, many things go into whether or not um, you're able very early to perceive what it is that has caused such a such a devastating loss for the patient. The signs of of breakdown, I think would be noticeable to almost any experienced clinician. Mm-hmm. The patient has changed. He or she is just different. And they're different in a, different in a way that um, is not really explicable. In other words, it's not something that you were you know, anticipating. Uh, whether they are speaking in a very different way, whether they are walking mm. in the room in a hesitant manner, uh, you know, you just know something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it and one signal anxiety uh, is alerted to it, um, and it's at that point that I then will move from this rather quiet, receptive position at times to a more active, questioning position mm-hmm. to try to determine what it is that's brought this 
brought them into the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, another comment that came out of uh, this reading group discussion was a, a feeling, you know, working here in the States, uh, every, people were like, well, what if I can't do the, provide this kind of care? Uh, there was a fear. Are we hurting our patients? I don't know that I have the ability. And it was primarily financially, actually, interestingly. People were very concerned. Um, well, if, if I went three days without seeing the rest of my practice, that would impact me for the rest of the month, et cetera. And there was a feeling that, um, that people were very taken by this and sort of got it. They were like, yeah, this, this way of working makes sense. But if we miss this moment, and if we, not if we miss the moment, if we see the moment but we can't provide this kind of care, what, what then? Um, you know, how do we live with the fact that uh, we may not be able to do this? Um, I don't know that you have an answer to that question, but it was uh, something that, that came up. Um, powerfully. I was wondering if you have any, any response to that. Well, I think that it's appropriate for people to be anxious about this situation because it is anxiety provoking. Mm-hmm. If I'm understanding you, one of the anxieties is, well, if I work with somebody for three days uh, and I'm not seeing other patients, I've lost income. Mm-hmm. If this happens once a year or once every two or three years, you know, what do I do about the financial loss? Mm-hmm. Well, if one wants to think simply in that way, um, on the other hand, if you keep that person in analysis, they don't have to go off to hospital <laughs> where you've lost them, right. you will retain your income. You're not going to lose money. Mm-hmm. You are going to, it's going to balance out in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I, I, I think that that's probably the least of one's worries. Right. If you're going to worry, I'd say that's just about the least of the worries because the patient holds will remain in, in, in analysis. Now, admittedly, if somebody I see twice a week or three times a week, and I'm now seeing them twice a day, seven days a week for two or three weeks, mm-hmm. I, don't, I do not increase their fee. Right. Uh, uh, and I indicate in the book the reasons why I do not increase the fee. Right. But, uh, again, over a period of five or ten years, Economically, I think these things balance out. Yeah, uh, well, it's it's you know it it was it's nice to hear you just describe it so plainly because of course that makes sense. I just was I was curious uh, in my reading group that there was this panic. What would I do? How would I? And I think the I, the thought was, oh well, what if this is happening every uh, you know every two months or every? But I I think you're right. It's not probably happening uh, that frequently. And it also does help you to keep the patient um, with you um, which, and, and continue to keep them in treatment. Um, you have a very powerful, um, in this book, a very powerful critique, um, you be, and you begin with it, really, of uh, the problem with, medic- with medication and hospitalization for the person who's breaking down. Um, and you state very plainly and simply that um, psychoanalysis is the treatment of choice for this person. Um, and that the delivery of the patient to the hospital, uh, which is a, I think you refer to it as sort of a non-human, like the return to a non-human environment, only deepens the, uh, the patient's malaise. But you also write, and I quote, that this book is a, quote, testimony to the past. Whether it can be relevant for the future depends on the success of psychoanalysis and the therapies and convincing the state to refrain from dictating psychotherapeutic uh, practice. And um, here in the United States, as you know, we're, we're up against it. Um, and you note that people here practice reactively and uh, 
and defensively. Uh, you know, I've had, for instance, patients go to the GP for a cold, say they were depressed, and end up on SSRIs. And does the GP think to call me to confer? No. <laughs> so, you know, and I think this is probably a common experience for many, many clinicians. Um, would you have any thoughts about what could help American analysts shake off this way of working defensively? I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know if there's like a single, you know, a single idea or, you know, a magic bullet to like cure it, but it really, it's a, it's a major problem, um, you know, for how, for how people practice. Um, do you have any I thoughts? Think that I, well, I think the days of the, of the heraldic days of the SSRIs are limited. Right. Uh, we've had enough experience with SSRIs to know that their effect, for the most part, not all of them, is mm-hmm. time limited. Uh, and that, that individual patients are going to be moving from one, from one medication to another, to another, to another. Um, if the premises of this book were to be discussed, and indeed if they were to be presented to different professional bodies and associations, and if it were recognized that extending the number of sessions was an acceptable form of practice, then... Um, one would be able to do this, and it would be seen as within the, the standard of practice of a, of a particular profession, in this case, the profession of psychoanalysis. Uh, and so uh, it would mitigate the anxieties in the clinician that he or she would, in effect, be subjected to some sort of uh, uh, litigation or some criticism that mm-hmm. he or she was practicing in an idiosyncratic manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I wrote the book because, you know, I, I, I certainly could have kept this whole thing myself. Um, I, I wrote it because even though it's the testimony of a, of, an, of a single individual, just one analyst, I thought I should get it out there, that I should get it out to the public, to my fellow practitioners, so they, should, so they could read it. And perhaps in the course of time, through um, differing uh, ways of political change within psychoanalysis, it would be made possible for analysts to try this. Bearing in mind that the argument for the United States here is that each analyst doing this would have to have a psychiatrist as a, in effect, clinical manager. So the psychiatrist at any point in time could say to the analyst, I'm sorry, but this patient has to go into hospital or this patient has to go on medication, at which point that would happen. So the analyst is really, in effect, saying, I would like to see if, through extended sessions, um, I will be able, through the analytical process itself, to help this person go from a breakdown to a breakthrough, because Mm -hmm. breakdowns are saturated with meaning. They are the most meaningful event of that person's life. And to lose the meaning of the event is a tragedy. Right. So to be sent to hospital and to be uh, vegetated through med- medication is a tragedy in terms of the search for meaning mm-hmm. and, and the potentially transformative effect that's there, that's brought about by uh, psychoanalytical processes. That's, um, that's a powerful answer. I mean, I, I, I know people who have read the book and have, have said to themselves, uh, in supervision groups, et cetera, I have a patient who I know is breaking down. I know it. I mean, this is the, I'm, when I say your book has had an immediate impact, I'm not kidding. Um, 
I know this patient is breaking down. Do, do I, you know, and they don't have anything in place like what you've described. Like, you know, they, they, maybe they know a psychiatrist, but you know, many analysts aren't working directly with psychiatrists, you know, and many patients have their own psychiatrists and so on and so forth. Um, and the link between the psychoanalyst and, and, uh, social workers, um, usually not such a, a clear connection, um, can be made either. And you describe how important it is, uh, for the analyst to also have kind of a, a holding environment for the analysts to do this work, uh, which I thought was very beautiful. Um, and I wondered, when you first started to, to do this work, you had your psychiatrist and you had the, you know, your, your uh, team of social workers, but you were in isolation um, from another holding environment, which would be uh, other psychoanalysts. Yes. Yeah, and I... I I thought about, I wondered about the, the impact of that, that you were essentially, in some senses, on, on your own without your analytic um, milieu or your, your analytic uh, colleagues um, to sort of be, to be with you, to help you to bear it, as I imagine it's something to bear. Well, it is something to bear, and the team of, of people that I work with in, in Great Britain mm-hmm for all those years were incredibly important to me. And I certainly couldn't have done this without them. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the psychiatrist I worked with had been in analysis. Mm-hmm. So he certainly didn't know what a psychoanalysis was. And he was not medication happy. He was not going to insist upon medication immediately. And uh, he had, we, we understood his role. And it was very clear. Um, of course, this was back in the late 70s and, mm-hmm. and, and on the 80s, I, I had no idea this was going to happen more than once. Right. I, you know, uh, I had really, I, I thought these were just sort of strange occasions that, uh, you know, I, I brought the team into effect that, that I had created to help me with schizophrenics and manic depressive people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, didn't occur, it didn't occur to me that I would ever use that team uh, to help me with um, so-called ordinary people. Right. Uh, Having breakdowns. Right. Also, uh, because it was three, four, five times a week psychoanalysis, which was a standard of practice, we were accustomed in the British society to people breaking down slowly mm-hmm. in the course of the psychoanalysis. And for the analyst to kind of get to the core conflicts, for, them, for the uh, interpretive process uh, mm-hmm. uh, to be mutative over a period of time. Right. Um, so, you know, again, uh, psychoanalysis itself. Just ordinary analysis usually did the work. So these were, seemed to be quite exceptional experiences. Why they become more frequent, I can't tell you why. I do not know the answer to that. But toward, in the, by the, in the middle 1990s, um, about once a year, one of my patients would have a breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've not plotted it up and, and got the numbers to, to, to provide. And I had also been doing a lot of supervising in the United States and other countries, and people had presented patients' uh, cases where they were too late to get mm-hmm. to the patient before the breakdown took place. Right. And so I could see that, look, if, if you had provided sessions before the breakdown, uh, which resulted in hospitalization, mm-hmm. what do you think might have happened? And when we looked at it that way, after they got over the anxiety of, but, but nobody does that, couldn't possibly do that, mm-hmm. what would people say, et cetera? Then, uh, well, 
we, we, we could rethink things. And in some cases uh, of supervision, the, the, the analyst was able to get to the patient, intensify the sessions, and turn things around. I, however, have not answered your question, I realize, about my analytical colleagues. Yes, I didn't. This was all new. I didn't uh, in the beginning. But by the mid to late 1980s, clearly I was aware that I was off on my own doing something that, to my knowledge, no one else was doing. Mm -hmm. And actually, I did not want my colleagues to know about this. I did not want to have to defend it. I did not want to have, I did not want supervision because didn't want the unconscious communications interfered with mm-hmm. from my patient to myself, uh, for better and for worse. Yeah. Uh, it, and, um, I also did not want to be known as a regression analyst. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I did not want to get around. I didn't want my other patients to know about it. Uh, so. And I that, really basically kept this to myself. And that's also, you weren't... Except for the team. I'm sorry, go ahead. Except for my team, uh-huh. who, of course, they knew about it. We discussed it, not in detail, but just generically. And if we did well, we, of course, we were pleased. Of course, we were, relie- we were relieved. And, of course, we knew that something different was taking place. And for me, that was nourishing enough. Well, you're not... I mean, you... you you did not. You said you did not want to be known as a regression uh, analyst, and yet I would, I would argue that this is actually um, the way in which you're working is. Um, I wouldn't call this a regression analysis. I would say you're doing you're doing something else um, altogether, because while you're taking the patient through this breakdown, um, you're also very careful um, to not uh, let the patients. Uh, sort of healthier ego aspects, you know, work life, home life, whatever, fall by the wayside. I mean, you stress and emphasize in this book that um, that the patient's interest in going on uh, with their lives, the resistance to, for instance, changing to the 9 uh, a.m. to 6 p.m. frame, should that be the case, um, is something that, that you're, you're on the side of. You want, you want to see that, actually. Mm-hmm. In a patient, so because I, ha- I have a quote here from you, um, I, the book has a, a lot of love for Winnicott, but also a strong uh, critique. I mean, I think you say essentially uh, this work is not possible without um, you know certain forebears amongst them, uh, Winnicott um, and the work that he did. However, um, that you have. Let me let me read the quote here. It's a in the conclusion. You say there there can be serious pitfalls if one prioritizes. Um, the sense of personal reality over the ability to live in the external world. Whilst Winnicott, as well as Ballant, Kahn, Coltshart, and others, may have been expert in handling ordinary regression to dependence, I believe that promoting a state of deep primitive dependence on the analyst is injudicious and counterproductive. Um, and I think that that uh, probably what people need to come away with, I think, from reading this book, is that you're, you're doing something... Um, but between the regression analysis and and moving the and moving the patient forward, base, essentially, you're if you catch the patient before they fall, they're not going to fall. Well, you're a very astute reader, and I wish that people who had who had heard my early presentations of this had had heard that. Well, you should have invited me. 
<laughs> I would have <laughs> gone to the my presentation. Life. My <laughs> life. Yes, I, it's a lot. Uh, I, um, I, I went across emphasis upon total dependence on the analyst, mm-hmm. which he had an eloquent argument for. I disagree with it. Mm-hmm. I think that it's that, that what recovers a person is not a psychoanalyst. I think the process is huge, but it's the intrinsic strength or life instincts of the patient, their ego, health, and abilities mm-hmm. that ultimately are the, uh, the means of recovery. Mm-hmm. And I want patients to know when they're in extremis, when they think that they have lost all capacities, want them to recollect and to be put in touch with their strengths. So I will remind them of their abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in the course of um, the sessions, when they're saying things that are self-analytically very astute, very interesting, I will say that's remarkable insight. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of strength. I want them to know that in my view it's the truth. Right. That it's not me that recovers them. It's the, I think the process is essential. It's their own strength. Mm-hmm. They're going to get through this. They're going to survive it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in my view, they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if I uh, maintain uh, the process, do a good enough job doing that, um, they're not going to come to pieces forever. They're going to come to pieces for a while, and they're going to come through it. Mm-hmm. But they come through it by understanding themselves. And that, that's puts a fair amount of work on the act of interpretation at times. Mm-hmm. Winnicott, did not, Winnicott did not believe in interpretation per se. He provided explanations of, of a reconstructive type from time to time, but he valued um, uh, the regression in and of itself as meritorious, and I don't think, think of it that way. Mm-hmm. A breakdown is a tragedy, mm-hmm. but, it can, it, but it can become profoundly transformative event if it's understood at the time and then there's a breakthrough into a different type of understanding of the self and others in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, have, um, you have a tremendous faith, I think, throughout, uh, throughout all of your work in, um, in the unconscious. And uh, I was just jotting down your notes in preparation for the interview, and I wrote his emphasis on the naturalness of the unconscious. That word, just naturalness, I said, he just, there's something natural uh, about getting out of the way of it, allowing it to do its work that um, is, is stressed, uh, I, think, I think, in this, in this book and, and throughout everything of yours that, that I've read, I believe, and it's, a, it's very powerful. Um, in fact, I have a, a quote here from you um, on the unconscious and from this from uh, catch them before they fall in which you say you write one of the functions of the unconscious is to store the disturbing experiences of the child self for a time in the future when it will be transformed into narrative consciousness it is as though the impact of the real is retained unconsciously and given psychic priority so if we become historians of the self at a later time in life these areas are sent to us marked quote special delivery i <clears throat> I, when I read that, I thought, you know, yeah, all, all that is needed at some level is the presence of a receptive other who gets, as you would say, the analysis idiom. Um, and there's something very natural. In fact, the image that would come to mind um, in 
you you give three uh, three very detailed um, cases in the book, and I always I had an image of flowing water, and <laughs> there's a lot of water mm-hmm. in this book, <laughs> which I wanted to ask you about. <laughs> so <laughs> so let me, <laughs> but but there's a flowing feeling of like, and then the patient is quiet, and then the patient, and these these are sessions from nine to six with an hour break for lunch, and then the pe- the patient has all kinds of you know, like flooding thoughts and flooding again, there's more water and, uh, and the patient drinks a lot of water. I notice in the, in these sessions and you describe setting up the room, preparing yourself for this kind of a session. And it, I wanted to ask about the setting out of the water bottles. I don't give my patients water. I don't know if your patients are provided with water in in their normal analytic session, probably not, but there was something about your arranging of these bottles on these tables that I just said, I have to ask him what's going on with the water bottles. And I, um, I don't provide water for my ordinarily for patients. So, um, this is unusual. I don't Um, mean it as a criticism at all. There's something so natural about it. It's like, here's these water bottles. Um, I, I think um, it's an act of provision, obviously. Mm-hmm. Of course, because they are, many of them, in tears for long periods of time, yeah. there is a, an issue with dehydration. Mm-hmm. And so they need to be hydrated. And water is there for them to, to drink, and they drink it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've, I put out um, um, a bottle or two of water on the, t- on the table next to the couch. Um, and they can reach over and and drink from it whenever they want, um, and they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the only thing I do that is, I suppose, um, in violation of my ordinary custom <laughs> of being an analysis. I, I guess. Um, but I was thinking, but, here's here's this patient, and here's this bottle, and here's this breakdown that's being received, and. Um, and, atten- and attended to, and there's something, there's a sense of flow that really, throughout the book, I kept thinking there, were, there was such a sense of flow and some of streams, of a nice stream, you know, and these patients mm-hmm. working through and putting these things together, and um, I, I don't know, that was just, you know, the image that was well, you're, you're adding. Well, you're adding a, another chapter to the book, which is interesting. I mean, it, it, one could look at I am intrigued by why three days seems the the natural limit. That was why my next question. It, why is it the magic number three? <laughs> well, I I I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that I have committed myself to um, a week or more. In other words, I'm going to do it nine to six every day until I get them out of there. Right. Um, and but it's never gone beyond three days. Um, I can't answer the question why it's just three days. You would, one would have thought it would be a lot longer than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I set the room up. I'm, um, I set it up and probably sit in the chair a half an hour before we begin. I just walk around the room, want to make sure everything's in place. Sometimes I've had to do this in foreign cities. So I'm in a, a hotel suite, and I've had to move furniture around, putting a chair behind a couch and setting things up. Mm-hmm. So I just want to get used to the room, to the space. Um, I'm tr- 
trying to, I, yeah, I, it's very hard to describe this, but I think I'm probably working myself into something like a meditative state. Mm-hmm. I know it's going to be, I know it's going to be all day long, which, um, but I'm calming myself. I'm soothing myself. I'm getting ready for it. And mm-hmm. then the, the, the patient arrives and we begin. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it actually goes very quickly. It, 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 it seems, you know, it's all day with the exception of the break for lunch. But I, I tell you, the six o'clock comes around very quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a different sense of time, which you capture uh, well in the book in a chapter called "Time." I think uh, mm-hmm. to uh, to describe. I, you're you're pre- you know it's it's funny in the book you also use this term I think just once. Um, I've read it pretty closely, um, but you use this phrase "psychoanalytic care," and it jumped mm-hmm. out at me when I read it. I said "psychoanalytic care" as opposed to "psychoanalysis," and there was something about the the word care being, you know, adjacent to psychoanalysis that I thought I'm not used to thinking of it. Of course, it is a form of treatment, but that word care. And the next thing we know, we're in these room, you know, we're in your office or we're in, you know, a hotel in uh, in Seattle, I think it is, with a patient. Mm-hmm. And there's these water bottles and um, you, uh, you know, talk about the, uh, the importance of, of the frame, that there is a limit, um, that it does, that the day does come to an end of this sort of maternal and paternal functions that you see as crucial, um, to, uh, I don't want to say finessing, but in a way to really provide, uh, yeah, okay, I'll say to, to finesse the situation so that the patient ha- knows there's a, th- that what they need is there, but it ends, and it begins again. Um, I, again, there's something very, very, very powerful in that. Um, I like it. I think, the pro- <laughs> I think the process is itself psychoanalytic care. I think the process itself, uh, one person lying on a couch um, free to say whatever he or she thinks, or not to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, another person sitting um, behind them, out of sight, but there, very much there, mm-hmm. not saying anything, but just listening, deeply listening. Mm-hmm. This is, um, in the Freudian moment, I argue, the realization of a phylogenetic wish. I think yes. we've been searching for this object relation for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Freud happened upon it, and he really did just happen upon it. Mm-hmm. But and, and he was a genius, so when a genius happens upon something, you know, it's the major <laughs> discovery. Mm-hmm. So um, I think over the years, I have been profoundly impressed by the process, and I believe in it. And so if I just uh, extend that process to these people, my belief is that they're going to get better. They're going to come through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, thus far, that's been the case. Mm-hmm. And I want to uh, get that out to as much as possible to fellow clinicians. Um, and it was actually two patients who said, why haven't you written about this? Mm-hmm. And I hadn't. And I didn't intend to. And I thought I had a lot of resistance to writing this book, probably for obvious reasons. But... Um, uh, at the end of the day, a few of my patients went public on this, mm-hmm. and I, I read their accounts, and I thought, well, 
probably should write this up. <laughs> right. uh, I, I think I should clarify what, what this is about and mm-hmm. why I believe it's efficacious. Um, so, yes, I think psychoanalysis is the treatment of choice for schizophrenia. Yes. Uh, treatment of choice for manic depression. Yes. Um, and so, um, this, many of my colleagues in London would agree, would agree with this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we're, uh, and also it's the treatment of choice for people having a breakdown. Mm-hmm. You know, many, so really go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it, the human relationship, the human dimension is an enormous factor in why this works. I, I speak of the, of the process, but also it is a process with it between two human beings and the commitment of the analyst to the patient. And the patient's recognition of that commitment mm-hmm. is very profound mm-hmm. and is itself part of the, of the transformation. Mm-hmm. I am... Um... I was reminded when I, on reading this book, I, I remembered starting out early as a clinician uh, 15 or 16 years ago and having a patient who um, was uh, severely uh, manic depressive and began to have a, a, a psychotic break. You know, she was very manic. And intuitively, I just began to increase what we were doing. You know, I just... Mm-hmm. I just contained it. I had she was she was going to eat lunch around the corner. I mean, I didn't see her from nine to six. I didn't, you know, the thought of that was way beyond me. But she, I knew where she was having lunch. I knew where she was going to her yoga class. She would have two sessions a day. We just increased it. Um, you know, I don't. I with the fee, I believe, uh, you know that that she paid and she she paid some you know more money. Whatever we figured it out, but it was um it was intuitive to to do it to sort of uh young a young woman. I mean, I thought to myself, my God, this is going to really um this is going to going to take her life away from her if we don't manage this. Um, and I think there's a lot uh, a lot of people who are who probably. In, intuitively move um, in that direction. So what's great about this book is it kind of, in a nice way, it codifies something. You know what I mean? Everyone will tweak it this way and that, but it codifies something, gives us an object to contemplate for those impulses and senses that, as clinicians, uh, many of us um, have had. Um, but the you, you mentioned before something about um, uh, possible sort of negative negative reactions to the book. And I was thinking, hello. Yeah. Oh, you're still there. I just heard a funny noise. Um, and, uh, I, the, the only negative reaction, and I wouldn't even necessarily call it negative is, um, that the book produced envy in people and amongst clinicians, um, person after person, uh, who've read the book, who I've spoken to, um, and I got a lot of people to read it because I like to get people's ideas when I'm really into something. So um, people recalled, clinicians mostly who read the book, recalled their own breakdowns that took place during their own analyses. And these were breakdowns that went unattended and perhaps were sealed over. And people said, God, I, I hated reading this book because I knew when I was 28 and I this and that and I was in analysis or when I, you know, my husband left and I couldn't, I, I you know, this and that, like, and they would say, oh, this, I know that that was a breakdown and we didn't change the schedule. We didn't, nothing changed. So it produced a lot of envy. And so I found myself wondering, um, 
in relationship to your book, what role uh, envy um, will play in how people approach um, thinking about giving uh, to their patients perhaps something that they've never received themselves? Um, that's, a hard, that's a hard question to answer. I don't really know. I mean, uh, firstly, you have um, emphasized several times that you know, you've read the book carefully and so have others. I, I hope that people will do that. I think if they read it carefully, um, then they will, they will get to the heart of the book and see that the, the more nuanced arguments being proposed what I in the in the or and when I presented this over a period of years, um, I've, I've been treated with you know obviously with I would call it collegial uh, respect and regard, but um, people have not quite gotten it. They've they've seen this as just um, sort of like a, a kind of like um, freelancing it, kind of <laughs> um, playing around with a frame, uh, impulse ridden. Mm. Um, uh, unnecessary. It would have worked if I had done it just in the ordinary way, um, etc. And so it, it's been when I presented it in in public, I uh, it's been pretty much dismissed mm-hmm. by the argument. So uh, it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. But well, you know, explain it more carefully. Take your time. Um, it is important, I think. And I, you mentioned working with a manic depressive patient. I really do think there are a lot of clinicians who try to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've, I've certainly over the course of 30 years or more of supervising people in many different countries, I've run across a lot of this. So I can see people uh, wanting to be able to um, extend sessions, wanting to find some way to use psychoanalysis uh, to deal with the more uh, acute crises. Um, and my hope is that those readers will see, ah, this is something we could do. But I, I'll take your, your comment early on that um, it would require changes in some countries amongst the, uh, the, 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 the licensing boards or within the professions themselves in, in, a, in order for it to become seen as a standard um, and legitimate form of intervention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But envy, I, I don't know, I... Uh, I get more, more like uh, that. There's nothing to be envied at all in this book, or the writer of this book. Poor guy. Oh dear, but you know, but but people. Felt, I get commiserations. Ah, but but what's funny is it. It wasn't so much. It, it was envy of the kind of treatment that you had provided that people felt they had mm-hmm. needed themselves, and it it was a powerful reaction um, amongst many people. Like why, you know, and I thought. And I asked, I said, so if, if, if we had to go without, <laughs> are we going to give what we haven't gotten? You know, which is often an impediment, um, you know, for, for many of us when it comes, when it comes to feeling, uh, you know, depleted in a certain, certain regard. It's just, it's something to, to talk about. And uh, with friends, we've been discussing it, like, uh, you know, and, sure. and the and there was so much anger, like an old you know analysis that's now been terminated for ten years. Why didn't this happen for me? I needed this, you know, kind of thing. Um, so I think that, uh, to my mind, I mean, it's really hitting. It hits a chord, you know, when people are saying that, like, this would have been what would have worked for me. That this is my, you know, this is what many people have said, and I was like, yeah, this it it makes sense. Um, 
You know, it makes an, mm. an, intu- an intuitive sense. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you, um, we're, we're coming, getting kind of short mm. on time. Um, you, uh, not only do you stress um, the uh, analysis, ego strengths while they're um, in, in breakdown, but um, you also describe giving um, for some, I don't know for all who have been through this process, I think you term it a lucid object, um, and it's something that you've written that describes, um, I, I guess, what has what has taken place. What is when you think about giving yeah. this thing to a patient? Is it about helping? I don't know. Is it creating psychic structure? What it, What is your your what do you what does it do? This object. Good question. Good question. I'm not sure I know the answer to it. I can give you some responses. Um, it, I, I did it just uh, with with some people, well, the first person who was, she was so uh, uh, psychically disorganized that it was very hard for her to uh, retain uh, in any of the interpretations that I was putting to her. Uh, and I, I don't know if she said she wished she could have it in writing or something. I think that's how it happened. But anyway, I typed up um, the psychodynamic gestalt that helped to put together all the pieces of the puzzle for her, and I gave it to her. She put it in her purse, and she read that, I don't know how many times a day, and she mm-hmm. carried it around with her all the time. Mm-hmm. And she told me it was incredibly helpful. I did it again with, with other patients, where there was such psychic disorganization that they needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, it served two functions. I mean, one was um, intellection. I mean, let's, I, you know, the word intellectualization is a bad word in psychoanalysis. What a shame. Mm-hmm. Um, intellect is very important. Mm-hmm. Intellectual faculties are crucial to a person who's having a breakdown. Yep. Uh, if they can read something that helps them to understand themselves, why in God's name wouldn't we give it to them? So uh, I see this as giving them something that they can use um, that will help enhance their own ego integration at a time when they're in pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, it also becomes something like a transitional object. Very much it so. Happens, it, you know, it's carried around. It's, 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 and then when they've got it, they lose it. They just, they don't need it anymore. It's going to become part of their psychic structure. So um, I do think one of the aims of, uh, of analysis after many days of immersion in, 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 in the process is to, for the analyst to come to an understanding mm-hmm. of what this is, quote-unquote, all about. And that the, the, the that a picture, a lucid picture, has to be provided to the patient that will help them to understand what this has all been about. Mm-hmm. Now, usually, those lucid pictures are pretty simple. They're not highly convoluted, complicated statements, mm-hmm. but um, they are retained by the by the patient um, and become very crucial in the years to come. Because for the most part, the experience itself, what they've gone through, they forget about it. That it just—it's something that, like they, childbirth, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, childbirth. That's, that's <laughs> interesting, very interesting to say that. But it is—it is, I'm sure, like that. Yeah, I—I uh, I recall from my my first analysis when I was in my twenties. My my analyst said something, and it had such an impact. And I said, "Could you write that down for me?" Mm. He, wrote it, he wrote it down, and I said, "And can I have that?" And I was given it, and I put it. It was on my refrigerator, and I think it it was so so very stabilizing in a difficult time. 
Um, yeah. and certainly, it serves so many so many purposes. I still have it tucked away somewhere, you know. But mm. I, I really understood. I was like, yeah, I, I get, you know, that you're that you're giving this to a patient. And of course, I also understood, you know, people say, oh, you're gratifying. Well, I, you know, I don't. I, I was when I was given this little piece of paper. I don't know if I was so much gratified as I was, um, in a sense, reorganized. I was like, this is where I am. This piece of paper says it. You know what I mean? And I see it, and it, it, it resonated. It almost be, it became, eventually it became a part of me. And you describe that, I think, well in the book, that, that the experience is, is integrated um, and becomes, uh, I don't know, there's new, there's new psychic structure, there's more space and, and room, but it's not that this breakdown is the, t- the be-all and end-all, the touchstone, this is my breakdown, but rather because it becomes a breakthrough, it's um it's it doesn't weigh heavy uh, on the patient in in the after in the uh, the aftermath, which is a uh, a testament to the power of of the work. Um, I think we're going to have to stop. I wanted to ask you how it was to be interviewed by your son, which is really fascinating. At the end of the book, um, Christopher's interviewed by his son, who I was like, is he does he do CBT? You know, is he into DBT? I wondered about all these all those questions. Um, but maybe I'll, you know, talk to you again. Maybe I'll read the China book or something and, and interview you on that. They, well, the books have to be within the last five, uh, five or six years published since the whole electronic um, thing. So, um, but I think I'm going to draw, bring this interview to a close, thanking you um, very much uh, for being with us um, and uh, sharing with us about your, uh, your really terrific um, and important, I think, uh, book, and we hope that um, you will uh, come back and uh, and talk with us here at New Books and Psychoanalysis again. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>